as Europe builds up its global footprint, it's crucial to avoid European navel-gazing. Instead, Europe needs to engage partners around the world on their expectations and concerns about the EU's activities and ambitions. That's right. Now it's time for Europe to listen carefully and with curiosity. Welcome to Europe Listens, where we explore issues, countries and regions that often receive too little attention in European discussions of global affairs. I'm Jana Polierin, Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR and the head of our Berlin office. And my name is Raphael Loss. I'm ECFR's coordinator for Pan-European Data Projects. For our very first episode, we could not have wished for a better guest than Professor C. Raja Mohan. Professor Mohan joins us from uh, Singapore, India, where he serves as director of the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. He has previously held senior positions with various academic institutions and think tanks in India and Singapore and served on the Indian National Security Advisory Board. From 2009 to 2010, Professor Mohan was the Henry Alfred Kissinger Chair in International Affairs at the United States Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. He also led the Indian chapter of the Pugwash Conference on Science and World Affairs from 1999 to 2006. Welcome, Professor Mohan. Thank you. Professor... It's wonderful to be with ECFR. It's a really great follower of what you do. Thank you, Professor Mohan. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Um, We'd like to start with, of course, AUKUS. Um, the submarine deal between Australia, the UK and the United States has led uh, to basically diverse reactions in Europe. While France felt betrayed, others merely shrugged. Um, in turn, US allies in the Indo-Pacific welcomed the announcement. Why do you think Australia decided to ditch France in favor of Washington? And how does India's government view these developments? Look, I think we need to separate uh, two things. I mean, I think one, the question of trust between Paris and Canberra you know, and between President Macron and Prime Minister Morrison. Uh, so I think there is a serious uh, sense of uh, betrayal there. But I think that should not, uh, you know, divert us from the larger challenges that, that await uh, in, in Indo-Pacific. And my sense is for France, there is life after AUKUS. <laughs> Uh, that uh, it, the fact that European strategy came on the day after AUKUS was announced was really coincidental, but I think Europe has a, a long-term role here. For India, uh, I think the important thing is, look, we don't want the coalition of like-minded countries breaking up in this region. We want Europe to play a larger role. India wants France to play a larger role. India has a strong relationship with France. India has also a strong relationship with the members of the AUKUS that is US, UK, and, and Australia. Uh, for India, the main purpose is how do we generate deterrence in Indo-Pacific amidst the rapid and dramatic modernization of Chinese maritime capabilities? So I think AUKUS does one bit, but I think France can do a lot more with India, with Japan, with other countries in the region. So my sense is, uh, as the, the personal issues uh, settle and as France looks beyond and Australia looks beyond, uh, the current, uh, you know, loss of uh, trust. There are a lot of things we can do, and India would hope uh, that that uh, France can do a lot more uh, in the Indo-Pacific. So, India has had no quarrel with AUKUS, nor it has any personal problems with the French. So, we hope to see a lot more uh, of France and a lot more of Europe in the Indo-Pacific. Thank you very much. Um, you already mentioned France a lot, um, and I would like to concentrate for a moment on the military role there is maybe to play for the EU or other 
individual European countries in the Indo-Pacific. Do you think that the EU, the Europeans, should play a stronger military role? Should we boost our engagement? And if so, how? Through NATO, um, yeah, through the EU, through um, individual contributions, what do you think would be best? I would say all of the above, uh, in a way that, uh, look, I think there is a problem for Europe. I mean, Europe is still not a collectively a military actor. It's still not a collectively a geopolitical actor. But I think it has taken some specific steps in terms of doing more in relation to military and security in this part of the world. We've seen individual European countries, uh, including uh, France, Germany, Netherlands, uh, all announce uh, Indo-Pacific strategies. All of them has have some security elements to it. So my sense is Europe, as Europe builds a personality on the defense side, uh, it could incrementally expand its role uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Meanwhile, you have the NATO structure, and I'm sure uh, NATO is beginning to debate uh, how it can engage with the Indo-Pacific issues. Uh, and I think that I think there is again uh, we are at the beginning of a process. But in the in the interim, uh, France has a large military presence in this part of the world, uh, and that it can do it already does quite a bit. And if it works with uh, India. Uh, with Japan uh, and other countries in the region, uh, its military role uh, can certainly be certainly be enhanced. But overall, I think your problem, Europe's problem, is this: uh, shall we say there is a Europe versus Asia question? Do you take care of your neighbourhood, or do you come out uh, far out into into this region? Now, given Europe's problems with Russia, can you also take on China? I mean, that's a question. So you can say is a Russian question versus the Chinese question. But life is always complicated. But within the constraints that Europe has, it can do more on the defense side. But far more importantly, I think, Europe has money. American money is all in the private sector. So while the Americans talk about connectivity, of doing something about the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, they're not going to be able to mobilize significant money. But if Europe does really make good of its promise uh, on the Global Gateway Project, uh, its plans to mobilize $300 billion, then I think we're talking big money. So Europe can play a very big role in shaping the debate about the infrastructure and connectivity in this region. I might add, uh, so for some people, it might ring the alarms about the colonial leader. But the fact is, it was Europe that built the infrastructure in Asia. All the great cities in Europe, all the great ports in Europe uh, were built initially by Europe. But Europe retreated. Europe is turned inward, started gazing at its own navel. But today, I think Europe can come back, not as a colonial power, but as a power that can actually produce greater sustainability, greater uh, you know, transparency to infrastructure projects. And I think any European role there would be welcome. And finally, Europe sees itself. I was a skeptic before of Europe as an empire of norms. But I think norms have a value. And a Europe that speaks up against, uh, you know, the hegemony in the region, that speaks up for in defense of sovereignty of the smaller countries, will have a powerful impact on the Chinese calculations. And I think that will be very welcome. We're already seeing a small country like Lithuania uh, can get China's goat. So if Europe as a collective speaks up on certain issues, I think it will have a great weight. Uh, as you've already suggested, Professor Mohan, uh, geopolitics uh, less and less is defined solely in, in military and economic terms. Um, connectivity, climate, health, all are shaping international relations today. So who to sort of paraphrase Henry Kissinger, does, does India's government call in Europe to discuss geopolitics in the Indo-Pacific? 
see, I think two things. I mean, the first question uh, that look geopolitics and these issues that you mentioned, climate change, for example, or health and all the pandemic, they're not two separate baskets. I think uh, traditionally we've seen them. There are the soft, good issues like climate change, like uh, uh, you know, health, security, that kind of stuff. And on the other hand, geopolitics is the hard stuff. But we now realize whether it's for economic growth or for security, the the climate and the larger environment cannot be taken as an externality that would not change. Uh, today, in fact, the negotiations on climate change are geopolitical. Who does what? The oil producers do one thing, the coal producers have another logic. Uh, the Those who have moved out of uh, conventional energies, uh, they have another uh, set of issues. So I think already what we do in the climate change is not immune from you know, imperatives of geography, different locations in the hierarchy of the international system and different immediate interests. So I think the merging of the two, the melding of the two is far more visible today than ever before. On the second question, now I believe Brussels has a number. So we're not uh, at the level of, uh, you know, Kissinger's question. Uh, Europe certainly has become a lot more a collective entity than since Kissinger's time. For India, I think what the change in India is that India has begun to discover Europe. For a long time, we did not think of Europe as a collectively, as, a, as an actor. But the last three, four years, I've seen India has really stepped up its engagement with Europe. Uh, and, and India sees uh, every, you know, that Europe can play a larger role and that India can benefit a lot uh, with, with European cooperation. And we just launched the free trade uh, uh, negotiation. So I think there is a huge possibility for India-Europe cooperation, when and how you actually get a good number, uh, I think India is ready for the, after a long, long time to deal with Europe. But digging a bit deeper here, do you see any preferred partners for India or other regional governments among the uh, 27 member states of the European Union in concerning connectivity, climate, health issues? Um, and are there, do you see any divisions between Europeans that make them collectively less attractive as partners for um, the countries in, in the Indo-Pacific? Look, I think uh, see, we traditionally dealt with Europe as a, as you know, only as the individual powers like Germany, France, and Britain earlier. But today, I think there is a much greater awareness of Europe as a, as a collective. But within that, obviously, on security, you're going to do a lot more with, uh, with uh, with France, uh, and Britain, assuming the nature of the relationship with with uh, Europe. Uh, Europe, if they play a larger role with the Indo-Pacific tilt, they will certainly engage with them. Uh, but Germany, you know, I know they, one of their frigates is showing up in this part of the world, just one. I don't know how many frigates Germany has, uh, <laughs> but it's uh, quite interesting that Germany, uh, we go back to our memory a hundred odd years ago when there's a German ship called Emden, which showed up in this part of the world to much to the surprise uh, to the region. So I think, as we said, look, Europe is a positive player. So the more you can bring, it's welcome, but not all Europeans are equipped and Europe as a collective is not fully equipped to, to play the role. But in terms of Europe's divisions, yes, um, there is a the depth of European geopolitics. I'm quite fascinated by it. As far as India goes, look, there's something we can get from everyone. Look, the Baltic, the Balkan countries to the Baltics. For example, the Nordics, uh, India has been engaging the Nordics as a collective. They're very good in innovation, very good in technology. They can bring in a lot of maritime capabilities. Uh, and we would like to engage them. I mean, we've now India has begun to engage the Central European countries, the Visegrad Four, uh, that we could engage with them on on a you know on a footing that we never did before. 
uh, we have now on the Eastern Mediterranean, India is finding common ground with France and with Greece, as well as with, uh, uh, with, uh, with uh, Egypt in, in the south and uh, UAE on this side. So, so I think there are new coalitions coming. So the old simple division of Europe and Asia is breaking down and, and that we have actually many theatres where we can work together with uh, different uh, European countries. But overall, I would say uh, that uh, uh, Europe, uh, you know, it's never going to be that kind of a single actor situation because you have 27 countries. But I think within that, uh, India is learning to operate in Europe. Uh, there is Brussels on commercial and economic issues, but there are others. Each one of them uh, can bring something. And, and lastly, the only guys who seem to be making submarines these days and are willing to sell it are largely uh, Europeans, uh, France, Germany, Sweden. Uh, Americans don't tell too many submarines, uh, Japanese do, but not too many. So there you are, Europe has capabilities to offer. And is there anything that you can think of um, for Europeans to make it easier for India to, to be a partner in terms of institutional structures or processes or, you know, a more, a more central role for Brussels vis-a-vis -vis the member states? No, I think until now, partly the problem was on the Indian side. I mean, uh, that, that we've uh, not really... Uh, been alive to the European opportunity, but that has changed. And I hope that engagement will continue uh, in a significant way. Uh, when Europe would like to, see, you know, we would like to see Europe, you know, tends to get mercantilist when it comes to China. Uh, so, uh, you know, so I hope Europe sees the larger situation and that it is willing to uh, integrate both economic considerations, you can't uh, turn them down. But at the same time, the larger questions of uh, politics in this part of the world, uh, Europe must be alive to that, not just on the human rights issue, but the structural change that is taking place in this part and not be, you know, either China first strategy or commerce first strategy. Uh, I think Europe needs to look beyond those. I think a new government in Germany should listen very carefully to this conversation. But I have another question to you, Professor Mohan. Um, we do a lot of public polling at ECFR, and according to our uh, recent poll, Europeans are skeptical about framing their relationship with China in Cold War terms. They are not on board with extreme competition. So India, too, has been navigating the increasing geopolitical rivalry with China and the U.S. Um, so what can we in Europe learn from India in this regard, navigating great power challenges? Look, I think, uh, you know, where you stand, as they say, depends on where you sit. Uh, you are far from China. You don't face a direct threat. Uh, India has a 4,000 kilometers of disputed boundary with China, which has become very live and activated uh, in the last 20 years. Uh, so, therefore, India is dealing with a situation where China decides to junk 30 years of confidence-building measures, agreements that were devised to simply, say, claim territory and to take territory by using force. And that's very similar to what's happened in South China Sea. Uh, of course, you talk to the Chinese, they say, oh, yeah, this is ours. We're just taking what is ours. But the idea that you can't use violence uh, to unilaterally change borders, that was the question. And Chinese have walked away from those principles, whether it's in South China Sea or India. So I think what Europe needs, I think, uh, to use the Cold War metaphor, you know, I always suspect uh, that's a cover to say, look, we will continue to do business with China. I mean, German auto industry, they say, look, let's not do Cold War, let's do business with China. But the fact is, what is the European assessment of Chinese politics? 
Is it a positive factor in Eurasia? Is it a positive factor in the Indo-Pacific? Or is it is the source of destabilization in this part of the world? You can't duck that question by merely saying, we don't do Cold War stuff, we don't do geopolitics, we only do business. And maybe the last question, and you already answered this to a certain extent when you talked about Europe, but where do you see the greatest potential between um, Europe, the EU and India in the future? Where can we kind of get better in cooperating? Look, I think, uh, you know, we broadly agreed to work together on the maritime security issues. Uh, for example, uh, the EU as a collective has uh, operations going on in the Arabian Sea. Uh, we can do a lot more there uh, together. Uh, we can look at uh, where Europe expands its operations uh, in the Indo-Pacific. There could be more opportunities. Uh, for example, in the Western Indian Ocean, in the Southwest Indian Ocean, where the EU can work with France and India to do more with the island states, which are becoming very live thanks to the Chinese presence there. Third is uh, the question of capacity building. As I said, look, Europe makes submarines and the whole of Asia is turning to asymmetric strategies. I know Europeans compete with each other as well. But I think Europeans can help build capabilities for deterrence, for defense uh, across the Indo-Pacific. And finally, I would say Europe uh, and India in the region can work together on, on European strengths, which is on renewable energy, on climate change, uh, because the small island states are the most vulnerable to climate change. And their future is in jeopardy. So there, I think, whether it is from... South Pacific Islands, uh, to Western Indian Ocean, uh, that there is a lot of room for EU and India to work together to help the small countries. Because we can think of them as small island states or we can think of them as large ocean states because they, they have a large area which is there uh, where they can exercise national sovereignty, but their ability to actually exercise it is limited. And meanwhile, you have massive patches of uh, Dead Sea emerging everywhere. So I think the climate change can be issues can be adapted to the region in a very practical way and that there is much we can do together. Thank you very much, Professor Mohan. It was a pleasure to listen to you and I uh, think we listened very carefully and uh, we are hoping that Europe did too. Um, our next guest uh, on Europe Listens will be Taiwan's Digital Minister, Audrey Tang. Follow us here on Twitter and submit your questions under this hashtag or via hashtag ReshapeEurope. If you want to ask uh, Audrey Tang about global digital governments and EU-Taiwan relations. Europe Listens is part of ECFR's Reshape Global Europe project, supported by Stiftung Mercator. Thank you all for tuning in and for listening in. Until next time. Thank you, Professor Mohan. Thank you. It was wonderful being with you.